You are tuning in the Nordic Growth Show, the podcast that lets you learn more about startup stories and growth hacking tips from the Nordic growth hackers, marketers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. In this episode, me, Jana, and Elena are the hosts of the show. Today on the show, we have Stefan Edenbrand from DreamData.io. Uh, could you please introduce yourself and the work you have been doing so far? Thank you very much for the uh... Yeah, first of all, the invite to the show and uh, the presentation. Mm -hmm. I know it's not the easiest word or <laughs> last name to say, uh, but uh, it was pretty good, <laughs> I would say. Um, so yeah, I'm Stefan. I'm one of the co-founders of a company called Dream Data Now. It's been, let's, let me count, roughly 10, 12 years since I finished my master education mm -hmm. from, uh, from Copenhagen Business School. And uh, yeah, since then, I've actually always been working for, uh, you can say, for and with internet-based companies who think digital. And adding to that, the, all of the companies have been primarily B2B focused as well. So you can say, whenever I say something, it's very much colored by the fact that I've been working mainly with digital B2B uh, scenarios. So sometimes it's B2C can be a little bit different and the ways things work might differ a little bit. So I, I, I tend to speak very much from a B2B perspective when one business is purchasing a product from, from another business. So can you tell us more about the Dreamtata.io that you're a co-founder now? How did you get there? How is the stress levels right now? Because I know that everybody that has founded their own company have said that it is quite the first are quite hectic and how is your day-to-day -day life nowadays? I would actually say I'm uh, not stressed at all at the moment. I don't know if that's surprising or not, but I came <laughs> from a job at, at Airtain where I was the uh, head of marketing and like I think we were 15 people on the marketing team and needing those uh, 15 people is a lot more stressful and having to make sure that marketing is integrated with what the rest of the company is doing is a lot more stressful than for me at least than to start over again and then start starting to build a company from scratch I would say. Now it's just me and a few other people so I have to manage and make sure that we're all running in the same direction and, and then that actually doesn't feel that stressful to me. But yeah, to speak a little bit about what we're trying to do at, at Dream Data, it's actually it actually makes sense to start with where I worked before, Airtame. Mm -hmm. So, so Airtame makes a, a screen sharing device that businesses and schools would use. It's kind of the reference, the simple reference is like an Apple TV or a Google Chromecast can enable you to share your screen. Mm -hmm. And then uh, businesses do have different needs than when the three of us wants to watch more Netflix at home. So the product could do some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Airtime was born out of record-breaking Indiegogo campaign in 2014, I believe it was. But I joined then uh, that company as uh, the first marketing employee and only a few commercial people and then help build yeah, both marketing and then the whole commercial setup for yeah, around three and a half years. And then that's everything from scaling team, scaling revenue to scaling ad spend in particular as well. And when you start building a marketing team and you start doing some activities in the beginning, it's very easy to understand what's actually going on. Meaning we have not run any ads, we start to use Facebook ads and we sell a little bit more. Then the connection is quite clear. We run some ads, we sell some more. As you scale all your activities, you start to do Facebook, AdWords, 
Twitter, Instagram, Reddit ads, SEO, content, etc. Then the picture bit starts to become more and more blurry. What is it actually that works? And you can say at Airtame, I was, after three years, we were close to spending, let's say, maybe 100,000 euros on ads every month. Oh, wow. And mm -hmm. when you are at that level, it gets harder to understand what if we spend an extra 10,000 euros on ads this month? Will we then sell more? And we started to struggle explaining this to the CEO. Why should we have more budget? Because it's harder and harder to explain if we're getting our money back. Mm -hmm. And that's, here's an important point for me to make is that if you do marketing and you're not able to connect it with revenue generated by your company, you're doing it wrong and you'll end up getting fired at somebody at some point. Marketing has to be able to be associated with revenue generated. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just wasting people's time and money. That said, of course, it's allowed to experiment a lot, but the overall thinking should be that we should be driving revenue and not just bash a little bit on brand building and comms and social media posts, etc. If you're not actually able to connect your activities to revenue, you should stop what you're doing and rethink what you're doing. But that was a long way short of saying that at Airteam, I was also struggling what you can call a B2B attribution, which is what we do at Dream Data today. What happens when one company is purchasing a product from another company? Because at Airteam, we were selling into schools and to businesses. And then from a school, you would easily see an account be made up by maybe a teacher, maybe an IT manager, maybe a principal from the school, and maybe also a pr procurement department that purchases stuff for them. Mm -hmm. so there you have four different persons being involved in one deal. And that's a tracking nightmare if you can only use traditional ways of understanding what goes on. Mm -hmm. For example, you might expose a teacher to an ad that that teacher might come into your website and sign up to your newsletter. That's nice. But then that journey from that school actually stops there because it's not the teacher's decision which screen sharing device you use. So the teacher would maybe go to the IT guy and say, hey, I saw an ad for this product. I think this is something we should have in our classrooms. And then the IT guy would come in, maybe go to Google, write direct in the Google search field, Airtame, click a branded ad on Google, go in and book a demo call. And then after the demo call, the trace of that guy might also stop because he's not the guy with the credit card. Maybe if that's the, the principal or if it's the procurement manager, somebody one or two or three months later would come in, put in a credit card, and then you sold something. And you see, it's nice that you sold something, but from a tracking and growth perspective, you're completely lost because you've been following three individuals and you've not linked them to the same kind of customer journey. And by, I would say, almost co coincidence at Airteam, I got introduced to my now co-founders of Dream Data, Lars and Ole. It was a local VC in Copenhagen who, who wrote to me, hey, I have met these two people that they're trying to solve this attribution problem. I wrote him back, yeah, sure, they can solve this. But anyway, I'll, I'm willing to meet these guys. That's actually the very first meeting I had with my co-founders. What they were able to, to do with the like, rough data that we had collected was the best solution I've seen to describing B2B attribution. Mm -hmm. So what was it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's basically the approach is really to, um, to say for any B2B company, we 
our, for our customers, we build a database. We use Google Cloud for this. And to that Google Cloud database, we integrate to all the commercial systems that one company has available. So that means we take all the ad spent and put it into the database bucket. We take all the automated emails and put it into a bucket. We take all the customer success software. We take all the sales software. We take the CRM data. And then we start to join all this data together to clean it up, to order it, and then to analyze it. And what is basically being done is that all the individuals who are there are sorted by accounts, are sorted by companies. And then you suddenly start to see a timeline, like I told you with this, uh, with this school example, that, oh, it's actually that teacher from that school who started the journey. Then an IT guy came and did something else. And then a third person came and bought the product. But it's actually all of it is connected to the same journey. And then you can start to say stuff about what's really the value of the ads that I'm running. Because the ads are good at starting the journey. But in B2B, oftentimes it's customer success. It's salespeople who actually are closing the deal, who are the last touch on the journey. And then uh, that, that's been a, a complete eye-opener for me. It's, a lot of, I think, when we look at our customers' ad spend in B2B, we can see that like 60, 70% of the revenue, they're not able to connect to any kind of revenue. And that doesn't mean that the ads are not working. If It's just because they're not able to track how they are doing these things today. So you guys are helping companies understand where exactly their revenue comes and what kind of ads and kind of funnels work for them. Yeah, and particularly, we only help B2B companies Mm -hmm. And you can say the challenges that exist if you have a B2B company is that there's a long time from the first time you see somebody until that company purchases your product. It's easily three to six to 12 months. And that's a nightmare if you use traditional tracking tools. Another thing that is a huge problem is all these stakeholders I mentioned. We associate all the stakeholders to the same account so we can actually start to see when did the account come the first time and when did the account end up buying. And then the third thing is that in B2B, most sales are made up by team efforts. So you need to kind of appreciate all departments. So if you only prescribe attribution to the marketing touches, you might be missing 70, 80% of the real value curation in a customer journey. Mm -hmm. And then the last problem or another important problem is in B2B, there's rarely a revenue component on the website. And what I mean by that is that if you're running like a B2C e-commerce, then somebody would click an ad, go into the website, buy the running shoe, and then the Facebook pixel will, will get information back about, oh, the running shoe was sold at this price. But in B2B, you don't have that cash register on the website. You end up sending an invoice or, or something else. So you don't have any revenue component to actually judge your efforts on. But that's all of the things that we try to put into scenario we solve at Dream Data. That's fascinating, actually. So this is kind of looking into the future and seeing that nobody is left behind in the in the process also i think yeah it is a, i think there's a we've been through like a process of everybody's shouting we need to be data driven and mm -hmm. then all the tools started to produce a lot of data and i think what we're now doing is that we're actually starting to make sense of all this data that is being produced whereas like 
right now people are just drowned in data. And what we're trying to do with our data model system, we're trying to sort it out so all the data that they're seeing is actually put into a meaningful timeline and we can do analysis that actually makes sense and not based on, you can say, a little bit of the vanity numbers that each system is able to, to give you. That actually um, also saves a lot of time for marketing in it. Yes, and you can say if you put some really smart people in the same room and give them a year or two, they can build a product like we do. I guess that goes for most startups. <laughs> but, but it is, yes, you save a lot of time because you connect all your sources uh, to us. We pull the data and we sort it for you. That's kind of very roughly what we do. It's, of course, super advanced what actually goes on. But in, in rough ways, we just, you connect data, we pull the data, we sort it and give you analysis. And in terms of like looking in the future, what is something that you'd like to even improve? Ooh, uh, there's a lot of stuff we, we <laughs> want, would love to do. I think you can say the North Star of what, where we're going is maybe even defining a new category that we want to call revenue automation. What's that, you might ask? Well, revenue automation for us, at least, is to say in a B2B context, given how we know your ads normally perform, now that you've set up this new ad, let's buy some more traffic for you or let's shut down that ad immediately if we can see it's not looking as it's going to convert into a lot of revenue at some point. Or given what we know about accounts, your salespeople should do X action next. So using all this data that we have about the behavior of, of the company, we can start to say, what's the next reasonable action to take? And we can either automate that or we can recommend it to a person. At the moment, what we are really good at is setting up the infrastructure and actually showing data that is true for the B2Bs out there. Well, that, so the next likely step we want to do is just simple recommendations based, off, uh, based on the data. Or it could be to advise you. For example, we can tell them how long is an average customer journey for you. For a lot of our customers, that journey is 150 days or more in a B2B company. So let's say, for example, if they are to, to make a budget for 2020, we could already inform them now, hey, you're way behind on your budget because the leads are not there right now. And we know that your cycle, a sales cycle is super long. So you really need to take some actions right now. Now we can produce real good B2B data. Next step is to kind of, okay, how do you act on the data that we provide? That we want to help people with as, as the next step. So the next step would be educating them on what to do with the data. Yeah, that's yeah. one thing you can say is the, we've had some customers saying, okay, now you provide us with super good data. What should we do about them? <laughs> <laughs> so there is kind of, we need to develop a good playbook for how to utilize the data. That's one thing. The other thing is that we want to make the product actually also be able to automatically scan the data and recommend actions that somebody needs to take as well so predictive and that yes yeah predictive or benchmarking or whatever you kind of what do you want to call it it could be for example you have a adwords campaign running that adwords campaign is super profitable then either you look at the data and think that yourself that you should go into adwords and purchase more of that traffic or we can put it out as an automatically recommendation for you this ad is profitable are you buying all the traffic available on this search trend. What about like, I was just thinking about the traditional marketing techniques because in business to business cycle still, mm. does that impact? Do you somehow add that data because it's not digital? Yeah, so we, we only do stuff that has a digital reflection. Okay. So for us, that also means, okay, who are we targeting? Well, we're targeting people who thinks mainly digital. 
like does 80% of their marketing or like growth tactics. So that's not to say you cannot do attribution to, for example, if you go to a conference and pick up 20 business cards there. Those business cards, if you then get them put into a, a CSV file that says, okay, I met this person from this company at this day at this event, mm -hmm. then you can start to upload that information and give that a, a digital reflection that then again can be attributed to starting journeys or wherever you met them in, in that customer journey. Mm -hmm. But it is kind of, uh, you need to force yourself to go from, if you do undocumented offline stuff, you need to change your behavior. So like if you call from your own phone today, start using something like air call where you call through like a digital system. Uh -huh. If you pick up the business cards and actually don't register them on your CRM or in a, like a Excel file or anything like that, start doing that. So go from undocumented offline stuff to something that gets a digital reflection. Then you can start to make sense of the data uh, when you have the time and the need for it. So yeah, our main customers are not the ones that loves to do physical newspaper ads or stuff that doesn't really generate a, a digital reflection. But that's how it is. You need to kind of sketch out the market and focus on where you can create your value. Absolutely. It's never the piece for everyone. Exactly. So you can say our, our current ideal customer profile is like a B2B who thinks digital and is between like 500 and or between 50 and 500 employees that's the ones we're targeting at the moment so i want to ask about uh, data in yeah. b2b marketing is there like a key data that a company can start analyzing uh, right away or is it more personalized for every company so you can say we offer some standardized analysis that we think made makes sense but actually that's jumping ahead I would say. Mm -hmm. So I think the shift we will see in the coming years is that companies start to care about owning their own data, first of all. And what does owning your own data mean? That means that instead of you only, if you're letting Facebook or Google Analytics or AdWords or some CRM system today be the storer of your data, people will start to do as we do at Dream Data is that we start to stream all the data into a, a database that the companies own because the other companies, they will start to delete your data at some point or mm -hmm. they will start to misrepresent it because they don't have the same interest as you. So companies will start storing their own data. And then at some point when they have the need and the time and the skills, they can start to make sense of it. Whereas right now, I think if people listen to it and I'm wrong, I think it's 180 days after that, Facebook starts to delete your ad data, for example. So if you're in B2B and the purchasing scenario is 360 days, the data is gone. So step one is really, really to start storing all the data you have available so you don't lose it. Then there's a couple of things that is nice when you've stored the data. You can start to actually see whether the ads that you're spending a lot of money on actually connects to revenue at some point. It's which pieces of content actually starts journeys that end up becoming revenue six, 12 months later. And it can be like, how long does it actually take to from the first time somebody reads a blog post, this is clicks an ad or something else and end up making money. I call that time to revenue, meaning from first impression until an account is closed as one. Because if you don't know that, you have no clue on how to evaluate all the experiments that you do. Meaning that if you're judging your activities on a monthly basis, but the value is only really seen after six, 12 months, then you have no clue what you're doing. You don't know if it's 
good or bad what you're looking at. And also just like predicting revenue and budgets. If you don't know how long it takes to get a new customer, you might be committing to a budget that is way too optimistic or it's way too pessimistic. Mm-hmm. You need to know how long does it take, take for you to get new customers in order to be able to actually judge all the activities that you do. So I would say that data is getting companies organized now, that get organized, understand where your revenue comes and what works for you and what not. That's the, uh, you can say, the optimistic version of it. (laughs) (laughs) It could also be that for a lot of companies, I think they also drown themselves in data. They get confused with the data because there's data everywhere. What number is the more important than other numbers? And if you're not really clear about which numbers that matters, people get confused. They start to make it harder. They start to f- have a hard time shot calling what's the good or the bad. So for me, I think for each department, you should only have like one or two numbers that you actually care about. Then it's true. Yes, that's you can say sub data lives everywhere that that makes up the one or two bigger numbers. But the only kind of numbers that you should really care about is do we sell more and why do we sell more? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've just seen it when you start to have like, let's say you have 10 KPIs or 15 different KPIs, then your team don't know what actually matters. And you should be crystal clear about one or two things that matters that helps them take a lot of decisions and move a lot faster. It's more like getting focused. And I think that's when you use data the right way. That's what happens. And I also saw on your profile that you are a public speaker and a blogger. Can you tell us more about that part of your life? <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of a, a byproduct of what I've been doing. And you can say what I do when I speak at certain events or I blog is just reflecting on what I learn. And I kind of have a rule for myself that I can only speak about stuff that I have experienced myself. And the reason why that is, is that there's a bunch of reasons for that. But I hate watching a speaker or reading somebody who's just stealing, copying the thoughts of somebody else. The audience can sense whether this person is speaking authentically from his own experience or he's just bullshitting his way and just stealing stuff from other people. And when you speak with that authenticity of this is something I have experienced myself, you kind of the response you get from people is a lot stronger. I, I guess the kind of way I learn is that I need to kind of reflect of the things I've gone through. So that's the reason why I've been blocking, uh, doing a lot of blocking for, for Börsen, which is the biggest financial newspaper in Denmark. It's just every time I've learned something new, I write a story about. Because mm-hmm. as I work myself way through this story i also kind of store it in my memory that okay this was actually what i learned from this episode and then i love helping people i love to put out content that makes people get smarter and i trust karma will make it worth the time that i spend on speaking and and writing stuff i think it opens a lot of doors that i'm not even aware about and it probably also closes some doors but better that it opens some that not not reaching anybody at all yeah that's true that's again uh, this positive thinking (laughs) i think it comes back in so many different ways whether it's employees who wants to work together with you if it's people who recommend other people hey take a look at that product maybe it's bigger speaking opportunities maybe it's contacts to important people etc etc i just love giving uh, knowledge away and then helping people and then some of it comes back in a very tangible way and other things is just people talking nicely about you which might lead you to a good place at some point so you're paving your way for future let's say with helping others (laughs) 
Yeah, and you can say like it's you put out like small signals to the internet and then people who kind of are like-minded with you, they make contact in some way at some point and that, that's really meaningful, I think. And do you also have like blog where people can read your thoughts and what you've learned in English or mostly Spanish? So at the moment, I'm spending uh, most of my time on the Dream Data uh, IO blog. Mm -hmm. And the last three pieces I've put up has actually been selected to best of the week on growthhackers.com. So oh. it's, uh, I try to really, really, really produce quality uh, blog posts at the moment. And at the moment, it's just, it's just about stuff that is related to, to green data, you can say. So it's how to get to time to revenue, how to understand the lifetime value of B2B ads, how to judge B2B content and that kind of thing. So I put off, it's all, all of them are more than 2000 words and it takes me a lot of days to actually produce them. But what, what I see is then also like people who've actually read these posts, spent five, 10 minutes reading these posts, they are also really qualified leads for our business. They're written in a way so they focus on adding value to the reader and not just for selling what we do. So today, if you want to see that kind of growth and marketing post I put out, it's it's the dream data block okay good so if we want to learn some more about data and and the usefulness of it then we can check <laughs> you can say it's a very that's a very broad definition of what you can read there but <laughs> it's it's at least related to those topics so uh can you tell us more about founding your company and what you've learned from all of this yeah so <laughs> that's not a simple answer but uh, i've written for down sure some, not <laughs> a lot of bullets that uh, we yeah. can go through we want and to know, know the fails and the successes all of it <laughs> yeah and uh, you can say there's a bunch of things of obviously to say here one thing is uh, i had a kid in uh, september mm -hmm. uh, my uh, me and my girlfriend had our firstborn kid in september and Congratulations. i decided to <laughs> thanks a lot <laughs> but I, i decided to go full-time on dream data in the the spring of year so knowing that i would we were expecting a child and the reason why i could do that is that me and my co-founders had kind of agreed that we are going to go for raising some funding for this company so we can actually get a salary. And my co-founders has two kids and three kids. So it was just a necessity to, for us to raise some money so we can actually get some money to pay rent, etc. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important to put out there that founders need to think about a way to sustain their life. There's only a limit. There's a limit to how many months you can go without being able to pay rent, buy food, etc. So if you start a company, do think about him, how am I going to provide for myself? It's not cool to have to, having to move out, move out of your apartment or go hungry. So that would be my kind of, the reason why I could say yes to that, this was that I would be able to pay rent and pay food, etc. So for that, for me, expecting a child, that was just a really important uh, component. And then having to choose my next experience, I, I chose very much from the starting point that I wanted to f do the thing that would learn me the most, meaning that if I were to take a new CMO job, people would be requesting me to kind of do what you did at Airtame and just repeat it here and do that a little bit better. That would pro perhaps provide a lot of value for the companies that I would be hired by. But for me, uh, I would not necessarily be learning so much. So jumping into three-man 
co-founding team, <laughs> I could see you're easily in line to learn a shit ton of stuff when you, when you do this. And then I, I think also another component was that I, I wanted to be able to prove myself that I could actually build a business. And then luckily I found some super smart co-founders that takes care of the product and the technical part. And then for me, it's up to uh, doing the commercial stuff. So it was bits and pieces of everything going on in that moment in your life. You had established a good career. You had that revenue and investment mindset. Mindset. Yeah, and, and you could say I had could eat. There was plenty of offers to take a new CMO job, but I actually I wanted also to move into a role where I was responsible for revenue as a whole, and that's that's what we've defined as a chief revenue officer at Green Data. That's basically you're responsible from everything from the first ad until the person ends up buying. So through sales, sales support, etc. Because I don't know that much about sales, and I want to master that as well. So another challenge. Yes, and if we are then to speak about tangible stuff when you're co-founding a company. I think one of the things I think a lot about is that your activity levels needs to be super high if you want to get anywhere because you're a completely unknown brand. Nobody knows about you. And if you do nothing, nothing happens. <laughs> It's, it's uh, maybe a little bit simplistic to say, but you need to be super active. You need to be active on social media. You need to be doing webinars, content, ads, sales, etc. if you want to go anywhere to survive. And that's kind of, luckily, I've had not had like a sick period of a couple of weeks where the kind of the pipeline would go dead. But it's, so, yeah, it's just a big demand for your activity levels to be high. So how did you, because you were only three in your yeah, team. Yeah, in the beginning, yeah. now we're uh, yeah, eight and soon to be 10. Oh, okay. That's quite mm -hmm. a growth. So how yeah. did, what would you say, what was the best channel for that? I think also particularly marketing at uh, or growth at this stage is all about doing a lot of experiments because you might have some ideas, you might have a good plan. It looks pretty in Google Slides or PowerPoint, but it's only when you start to try out stuff that you will actually know the truth of, does my idea Tears actually work. I've been pulling almost from everything from the marketing playbook, you can say, to try and see what works well, what doesn't work well. Stuff that has been working well has been to do these super long quality posts on our blog and then distributing them on the internet and posting them on different forums. For example, growthhackers.com, which is a great forum if you want to get smarter on these topics. That has pulled in a lot of traffic, a lot of email signups. So content is one thing. Another thing is uh, webinars. Proven very, very uh, successful, I think. We've done webinars with 600 signups, webinars with 300 signups, webinars with 200 signups. So it's a very scalable way of getting a lot of people to spend time with your brand. And then you can start to write emails to everybody who signs up to these webinars. We've then also done uh, physical events, invited people to come hear some smart speakers and try to explain complex stuff in an easy and understandable way. It's less scalable than the webinars, but I think also there is some magic in the physical meeting that you still not cannot really grasp through only doing uh, digital stuff. And we're doing, uh, we're doing ads. We've tried it out, but it's super hard to make profitable. And I think that's because of the industry that we're in. We're selling MarTech 
technology for marketing, you can say. Mm -hmm. And in that industry, one, the deal size is large, like people pay a lot of money for the product. And two, you're competing uh, against other marketers who know what they're doing. So that drives drives the like cost per click up Quite a high. lot. Yeah. Yes. And when you're a kind of a young company, uh, you want to be pretty careful about how you spend your money. Today, we don't know enough about is it worth running ads on or is it worth paying 10 euros for a click or not, which is what it easily costs when you're doing a, like software as a service for, for marketing. And then obviously introductions through people you know to relevant leads has been working super well as well. It's a lot better than coming completely cold to somebody. I think we've done a lot of different inbound tactics that are working quite well that we want to do more of and uh, yeah, we'll keep doing that and then we need to learn how to you can say do outbound say I want to reach Yana from Aurobear and I want to book a demo call with her and I want to explain her the product this is something we are still to, to learn how to do that super well okay so it's a great challenge for you right no dull day in your in your work life right now absolutely I, I really like it and uh, you can say because I have so much experience running traditional uh, marketing I can do that with kind of the left hand and then I spent a lot of time trying to master the sales efforts, booking meetings, closing deals, etc. So do you think that every marketer should have also some sales background? Not necessarily sales background, but every B2B marketer should speak with his sales team, if not every day, then at least every week and thoroughly speak with them once a month because you constantly need to be picking up who are the good leads? What helps the salespeople close the deals? How does the customer really look like? Join the salespeople when they travel to a customer. See what the office looks like. Who are these people that you're speaking to? I would say get super close to the salespeople because you're kind of mutually connected if you want to be successful. Marketing can start a lot of deals, but if all the deals that they start is really bad leads for the salespeople, then it's a waste of time and money. Marketing needs sales and sales needs marketing. So you better really work tightly together on nailing what what, what success looks like. That's some great advice, I think, because in the end, it's sales that finishes the deal. You so easily end up in your own silo caring a lot about, oh, we got a lot of likes or a lot of yeah. shares of a post, but... <laughs> The sales guy just wants three really good leads that he can then call and then try to, to finish the deal with. You need to know each other's world to be successful. If we go back a bit to our conversation, to the point where you were talking about pitching, could you yeah. talk us through that period? I think we learned a lot from that. First of all, it takes time. When you're just the three of you, there's not so much time to actually spend on selling to customers or to building a better product or finding more leads, doing marketing. So fundraising do take a a lot of time because you can say you need to date a lot of frogs <laughs> in order to find the princess <laughs> <laughs> you need to kind of constantly pitch what is it that you're doing now and what is the vision of where you're going how big is that market how big can it become how much revenue can you make etc so you need to you can say fundraising is really easy it's not easy i would rather say it's simple you need to come up with a really good plan how to spend the money you're getting if you can, can present the investors with a really really logical rational plan of where what you're going to do with the money you're asking for it's somewhat easy to to get money from investors but to get to the point where your plan is simple and logical and rational it takes a lot of time back and forth revising the pitch trying to pitch again trying to pitch again trying to pitch again <laughs> asking investors who is the next person that we should speak to uh, do you know somebody who's interested in this 
space of investment. So it's a little, it's a lot of trial and error and refining your pitch. And not getting up, I assume. <laughs> Definitely not getting up. And also just know that it's going to take some time. Like if you think you're going to close a, uh, an investment round within a month, you're probably going to be disappointed. But if you work really consistently on it, you should be able to do within six months, 12 months or something like that. This is not uh, science. This is just, was just yes. my like very from the top <laughs> of head uh, guessing. But it is here really built that really, really good story with some really, really tangible KPIs. And then you're in a good position. What would be the tangible KPIs that you would suggest looking at? So say you're raising 200 or 300,000 euros. Describe in detail a budget where all of these monies are going until you're able to raise new money or you're able to fund yourself by just selling more. So it's really breaking it down to, okay, what part of the budget goes to marketing? What are we hoping that comes out of marketing? Who are we going to hire? Is it developers? Is it uh, salespeople? Is it a CFO? Like really just tangibly describing every bits and details of the plan, both in a written level, but also in a very numbers. And during this process, was there something unexpected that you discovered? I think what we've learned that we uh, will do the next time at least is to run more parallel discussions, meaning that we were kind of being, uh, I don't know, somewhat polite or just doing them one at a time, you can say, like meeting one with one investor, meeting two, meeting three, meeting four, meeting five, and then are you going to invest or not? And then yes, no. Mm -hmm. Whereas it's better to start a lot of simultaneous discussions so you can re keep refining your pitch in between every meeting with every investor. And you can also accelerate your approach to reaching some investors who are actually uh, ready to say yes and no. So that's that's one thing. Another thing is that the story you tell needs to be a story of a really big vision because you're, if you're in a too narrow space, investors tend to find it not that interesting. If it's a really simple thing you do, the revenue you can make or the market you can address is probably also limited. If you can explain a really big vision of, yes, we do something sim simple right now, but it actually leads to this very big vision, that tends to get the investors excited because there's a lot of them who, for the portfolio, operate with this theory of you need to just be successful with one out of 20 of your investments and that 20 will easily cover all the, uh, the rest of the expenses you have for, from all the other investments. Um, as I understand, also, if you are running the investor round simultaneously, you can also pick and choose. Otherwise, you have only <laughs> this one deal on, on hand and you can only focus on that, right? I think uh, that's the essential of all deal making is that yeah. <laughs> you, you need to have alternatives so you're not forced into taking one particular decision. Mm -hmm. So that goes whether you're making deals with a customer, whether you're buying traffic from an ad provider or if you're raising investments or... <laughs> Yeah, all things really that you need to kind of have an alternative on your hand to understand what's good or bad. Do you have any takeaways you would like our listeners to gain from this little conversation we've had? I think in general, companies should take this notion to mind that you need to start storing your own data. You need to store your data somewhere. Whereas mm -hmm. today, people are just re relying on their mail automation provider. They're relying on Google Analytics. They're relying on Facebook ads to store the information that they have. You need to 
start to put your own data into your own database where you can start, uh, store it for eternity. And then you can start to make sense of it yourself and not rely on some publicly listed company to tell you the truth about your own business. You need to know the truth about, about your own business. And then, yeah, obviously, if you're a B2B and you can kind of feel that what I'm saying is making sense, feel very free to just write us on our chat or connect with on LinkedIn or something like that. We can, we can talk about what makes sense. Any other notes? I think like the general rule of thumb, if you really want to really take a startup from zero to one, so to speak, is to think about everything you do as experimentations and do small experiments that you constantly test out new stuff to see if there's something that works. And as soon as you find some activity that works, then try to repeat it and see if, uh, if it's possible to do two times or three times. And when you kind of start to feel that you have a recipe for growth, then you be, need to be as extremely aggressive on scaling that channel as long as you can see a positive return on investment coming from it. But because that's the kind of the pain of all growth activities is that they stop working at some point. <laughs> so as long as you have a winning horse, just keep scaling that channel until you kind of feel that it's not worth it anymore so tell us more uh, where can we learn about you uh, where can we follow you what are the next yeah. <laughs> steps for you and dream data i think to contact me it's almost just a social media of your choice but i think i'm mainly active on uh, linkedin and twitter so it's just my name stefan hedebrandt you search for there and uh, mm -hmm. yeah for dream data it's just dream data io and you can uh, subscribe to our newsletter just if you find it interesting what we, we do you can just listen in a little bit on what we do there that, that would be super cool okay great so thank you so much for coming and talking with us and we wish you all the success and <laughs> for sure we'll keep an eye on the dream data and your upcoming challenges let's say this way thanks a lot guys uh, i really appreciate the invite to, to join the show and if there's anything I can help with at some point you just reach out to me thank you so much that's a wrap for this episode of the Nordic Growth Show podcast on behalf of Aurebeer team I'd like to thank you all for joining in with us make sure to follow us on Facebook LinkedIn Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Aurebeer Growth to know what we're up to if you have any questions or requests feel free to contact us via social media as well as email We'd love to hear from you. So, until next time at the Nordic Growth Show.